Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 10th, 2022, a Friday. I can think of all sorts of reasons today to be cheerless, but let's try and be cheerful for a change. Let's be celebratory. Um, we're coming up on the 150th anniversary of one of America's great men of letters, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who uh, was born on June 27th, 1872, and died in Feb on February 9th, 1906. Uh, one of America's most remarkable 19th century writers, uh, one of the first uh, well-read uh, African-American writers, a uh, remarkable man, uh, born uh, of two formerly enslaved people and became a, a celebrity, a literary celebrity, traveled around the world. I'm thrilled in addition to celebrating Dunbar's 150th birthday, we have a magnificent new biography of him, uh, the authoritative uh, biography by a very distinguished Princeton academic, Gene Andrew Jarrett, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Life and Times of a Caged Bird. And uh, uh, Gene is joining us from his home in Montclair, New Jersey, near Princeton University. Thanks so much, uh, Gene. Um, why should we celebrate this life? What's so remarkable about uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity to talk about uh, this book that I've just uh, written, but also about uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, I think for sure we have the coincidence of uh, the anniversary of his birth, and so certainly the public will uh, gravitate to uh, aspects of his life and his career. But I would also say that he had a truly remarkable story. He was someone who, as you mentioned, descended from uh, parents who were slaves. And so it illustrates the struggle of someone who was able to emerge from harrowing circumstances. Uh, and it's also the case of someone who, through, of course, good fortune and pluck and great drive, uh, he was able to excel uh, as a thinker and as a literary writer. And so uh, the things that we can point to is how his perseverance enabled him to excel uh, in the public, and not only in the United States, but uh, internationally, uh, but also the ways in which his work itself commented on various aspects of American life, particularly the experiences of African-Americans that I think people should learn more about. Um, he was, as I said, he was born um, on June 27th uh, in Dayton, Ohio to parents who had been enslaved in Kentucky. How did his parents end up in Dayton? Yeah, well, you know, I think taking a step back, it's important to understand that Dayton, Ohio, at least in the um, mid to late 19th century, was a hub for uh, African Americans who had been traveling from the South to the North uh, due to the great unrest in, in the United States as a result of the Civil War. 
and the ways in which African-Americans were trying to aspire for areas of freedom. And so uh, Joshua Dunbar, as a former slave, he had actually escaped through uh, Canada, uh, and, uh, and he returned to the United States to serve uh, in the Civil War as a member of the Union Army. And uh, shortly after the uh, Civil War, he had settled in Dayton. And um, uh, Dunbar's mother, Matilda, was manumitted, and she had traveled directly to Dayton, Ohio, where her relatives had settled, they too having been um, uh, freed from slavery. And it was in this environment that they crossed paths and got to know each other and eventually got married. It's funny, um, it's funny Jean. Uh, I did a show last week with Anna Maleka Tubbs. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. She has a best-selling book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of MLK, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. And it's a, it's a book about mothers and how they shaped three of America's most remarkable 20th century men. What was um, Dunbar's mother like? What, what sense do you get? Did she shape him? I know it wasn't a particularly happy marriage. Did he grow up with the mother or the father? Well, you know, the, the, he grew up for a period of time with both, but the father eventually drifted away and uh, the, his parents were uh, separated and, and then ultimately uh, they had divorced in, in a practical sense of, of the word. And so he spent most of his time with his uh, mother. And what was she like? The, um, I wonder what Anna Maleka Tubbs would make of her. Was she the kind of woman who shaped a remarkable man? After all, to go from the child of uh, slaves or ex-slaves to uh, a world literary celebrity is, is quite a journey. Yes, I think it's an inherently complex question. I think she was a remarkable woman. Uh, she was an African-American woman, as I said, who was enslaved. And so to be such a person and to persevere in the peculiar institution, as slavery was, was called, is a, an incredible uh, story. And so she was able to defy all odds and to survive slavery. And uh, after uh, the period of emancipation, she was able to settle in Dayton, Ohio, to build her family. And so she was a very strong person. She was someone who um, was called at that time a domestic laborer. She was a laundress. And she, uh, in this in kind of environment, uh, raised Paul, along with two half-brothers from a previous relationship. And uh, she was able to instill in Paul the importance of being able to read and write well. And uh, she was also someone who commanded his love and uh, great attention over the course of his full life, even when he had moved on and married uh, Alice Ruth Moore, who I guess we'll talk more about uh, later. Uh, I would also say that Matilda Dunbar was a uh, rather uh, temperamental. Uh, she did have a temper in her interactions with her husband, uh, Joshua, or, or uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's father. And uh, in that kind of relationship, we had a turbulent household and Dunbar grew up in that household. And so uh, it's gonna be possible as you read the biography to make potential connections between the turbulence of the household of his parents where he lived and the turbulence of his own household uh, when he grew to be a young man uh, and uh, had a relationship with Alice Ruth Moore. 
Jean, there was, of course, a great debate within the African-American community in the latter part of the 19th, early 20th century about uh, reinvention, how to proceed, how to shape oneself. I know that um, later in life, uh, uh, Dunbar was familiar with Booker T. Washington. I'm not sure if he ever knew Du Bois, but where did he stand in this great debate between Booker T. and Du Bois about the place of African-Americans in American society? And, and, and excuse me if I'm oversimplifying that. No, that's quite fine. And I think the ways in which people encounter Booker T. Washington is often in relationship to W.E.B. Du Bois. And so uh, Booker T. Washington, also called the Tuskegee Wizard, was a uh, someone who advocated vocational training, the ways in which African-Americans could uh, work with their hands, uh, the ways in which they could be uh, committed to industrial training. Uh, and that was the way in which they could have an impact on society. And that kind of perspective entailed a, a rather gradual or incremental pace for racial progress. On the other hand, W.E.B. Du Bois was, you know, deeply educated, went to Harvard University. He had uh, advanced degrees and he very much prioritized the life of the mind, the ways in which uh, academic learning is the portal to the future, uh, to access to uh, various opportunities for uh, African-Americans. And so uh, Booker T. Washington and uh, W.B. Du Bois at a particular moment uh, in, in their careers in the 1890s and um, also in the early decade of the 20th century were at ideological odds, if I may put it that I way. I mean, I, I, their book ends into, I'm not sure, I mean, you know this obviously much better than me, the book ends of how to proceed in life. And I'm guessing that um, Dunbar was much closer to the Du Bois bookend. I mean, he was a, a multi-talented boy, even at six. He was writing poetry, he was doing music, he was he was clearly unusually talented. Um, he, he, in well, fact, he even went to school and he was quite close, I think, to the, the Wright brothers uh, who invented flying. So he was clearly at a good school too. Well, I would say that I think that could be a viewpoint in retrospect, if you take the full summation of his life. But at that moment in time, you know, there was a moment, and, and I uh, talk about it in the biography, where Dunbar understood where Booker T. Washington was coming from. They actually built a relationship where um, uh, Dunbar actually supported Booker T. Washington's uh, worldview. Uh, but Dunbar also had certain reservations about the long-term implications of, of that kind of approach. And so I guess to your point, it is true that... Uh, Dunbar himself was rather learned. He was uh, a, a great writer. He was a deft reader. Uh, and so in that respect, he embodied what Du Bois would uh, represent as the future of the race. Uh, but on the other hand, there were moments when uh, Dunbar understood the practical benefits of uh, Booker D. Washington's vocational worldview. And so he had a rather complex relationship to both men. How would you, and, and you've written this remarkable biography, so you can summarize this for us, uh, Gene. How would you um, describe his intellectual development? When did he realize that he had the ability to become a great writer, great poet, great figure within his community? Right. Well, 
I would say that he had uh, from an early age had an aspiration for literary performance and literary excellence. Um, he uh, recited poems um, as early as middle school uh, in Dayton, Ohio. And as time went on, uh, such as in high school, he participated in the editing of the school newspaper. And he also embarked on a venture to edit um, a newspaper along with Orville Wright, who you touched on uh, just a couple of minutes ago. And so it was through that kind of apprenticeship in these different settings where uh, he had a chance to hone his craft as a writer. And so I would say even before he published his early works, he had a chance to experiment with different literary forms. And as time went on, uh, and as he continued to gain confidence and to gain recognition in uh, his local community of Dayton, but also more widely, I think that cemented his view as uh, being uh, an outstanding writer. The subtitle of your book, Gene, is The Life and Times of a Caged Bird. And that, of course, uh, refers to Maya. Uh, well, many people will think immediately of, of Maya Angelou. I know why the caged bird sings, but that was inspired from a poem by Dunbar, Sympathy from 1899. Is this his great poem? Uh, I mean, how prolific was he as, as a poet? I'm guessing as now, it was a tough way to make a living. Yes, well, he was especially prolific. He was an author more than a 10 books of poetry, uh, four collections of short stories, four novels, a host of essays he published individually. Uh, he also published individual poems in syndication in newspapers across his career. So he was especially prolific, to be sure. Um, I would say that uh, this poem, uh, Sympathy, that you refer to, does uh, provide a central trope uh, that characterizes his life, about being a bird with, if you will, uh, great aspirations, uh, a bird that views itself in a special way, contending with the cage of society, society which has its own preconceived notions about what this bird can do, has its own set of expectations. And the way in which we navigate through life is a balance between how we view ourselves and how the world views us, our, our, the ways in which we navigate the world is some kind of negotiating negotiation between these two perspectives. And so the idea of a caged bird, which is key to that poem Sympathy, is really a, a kind of a universal message about how the individual seeks to um, find a way in the world despite preconceived notions of the public. And I think that universal notion applies as well to Maya Angelou's autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sing, which talks about how uh, an African-American girl grows into womanhood and is able to contend with the specters of racism and, and uh, sexism in, in society. Um, he was championed by many people, uh, many figures within the white establishment, one in particular, William Dean Howes, who was supposedly the Dean of American Letters and the editor of the Atlantic Monthly. How central, and, and I know this is a bit of a dumb question, but I have to ask dumb questions, Gene. I mean, how central was race in the late 19th century for 
a man like Dunbar? Did, when people met him, did everyone think of him first and foremost as a black man? Did he think of himself as a black man? I mean, this was at a time of enormous turbulence and disappointment in, in, in the history of African-Americans in America. Yes, um, I think so. Uh, at that time, you have to remember, once you hit the mid-1890s when Dunbar was uh, growing in his career, that was only three decades removed from the end of slavery. To put that in perspective, that would be equivalent to the 1990s uh, today. And I'm sure some of us would think that the 1990s was not too long ago. And so it, it would be naive to think that some of the uh, stereotypes, some of the preconceived notions about African-Americans um, from the era of slavery uh, did not uh, actually continue um, into the uh, 1890s. And so I think Dunbar was still contending with a world where people who were once enslaved were still alive. Some people at that time who owned slaves uh, previously were still alive. And he was trying to pierce this marketplace uh, as a writer. And so um, in that sense, he was contending with race, um, as you say. Uh, but I also think that he had a rather hopeful view that at some point there would be a, uh, a recognition of his gifts as a thinker and as a writer beyond some of the preset ways in which people were characterizing African-Americans. Yeah, in contrast with some of the leading 20th century African-Americans, James Baldwin, for example, who's featured in um, Anna Maleka Tubbs's work, or at least his mother. I mean, here was a guy who grew up in Dayton. I'm sure there was some racism, but it was a quite different experience, I assume, uh, Gene, from growing up in Alabama or Mississippi, wasn't it? Well, you know, it depends on what aspect of life we're discussing. I will say that in the second half of the 19th century, there was rampant, uh, you know, not only racism, but racial segregation. Uh, the ways in which uh, there were uh, different facilities accorded to whites as opposed to uh, blacks, the ways in which there was um, kind of a last a lack of in social intermingling uh, between the races such that there were these narratives of light-skinned African-Americans passing as white to try yeah, and- Yeah, I don't know if you saw the movie Passing, it's slightly later, but it's a wonderful film. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, that's anchored to Nella Larson's, you know, novel, you know, Passing as well. In the Harlem Renaissance, Harlem. but this was before the Harlem Renaissance. Right. That's right. And so, but, you know, nonetheless, you know, until you have, a, a, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education, you know, you have this kind of time period between the late 19th century into the mid 20th century of a continuity of structures that kept whites and blacks apart and these kinds of systems that uh, oppressed African-Americans and curtailed the ways in which they could access resources or advance uh, educationally. So I would say that there were remarkable differences uh, between uh, Dayton and, and Alabama, as, as you put it, but I would also say that you know, there are some commonalities of experience as Dunbar himself, if I may put it that way, was trying to overcome these structures. Over his life, the, the, the initial promise, I think, of the post-Civil War age was replaced by the reality of, of a world where maybe slavery had been done away with, but a 
lot of the other features of slave society remained. Did, um, did this shape Dunbar's life, his work, his thinking, his literature, a disappointment with the promise, with the, the realization that a, a colorblind society was inconceivable in America and the reverse was actually true? Yes, I think that's a great question. You know, just to put in perspective, during the era of slavery, there was a kind of biological determinism, if I may put it that way, about what people of African descent could accomplish in America. Uh, there was a way in which they were viewed as uh, innately inferior. And, uh, and this kind of racism, that is the idea of seeing one race as superior to another, uh, permeated all aspects of, of life even when there are occasions when you are achieving certain benefits. And so in the case of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and to circle back to your example of William Howells, William Howells was someone who um, enjoyed Dunbar, who uh, had um, praised his work, particularly the book Majors and Minors in the mid-1890s. This was the review of Dunbar's work that launched him on the international map. But in this review, William Howells nonetheless leans on certain stereotypes about the capabilities or lack thereof of African Americans and the ways in which Dunbar himself is rather peculiar uh, in the way in which he was able to write poetry that was beautiful in a certain kind of way, but in the way of dialect, that is to say, the language of illiterate, presumably illiterate um, African Americans. And so that disappointed. Uh, Dunbar. In a way, he was betwixt and between. On the one hand, he enjoyed the commercial vogue for dialect poetry that he represented, and he earned good money off of that. He recited those poems, he published those poems and his books, and he was able to tour the world as a result of it. Um, on the other hand, if you put his material or financial gains to the side, he still had to understand how it nonetheless encaged him in these kinds of notions of potentially black inferiority. And his life was in a way the struggle of how to overcome these perceptions, even as he was benefiting from them personally and professionally. You mentioned that he traveled overseas. He came to uh, England and met Samuel Coleridge Taylor, English composer, a man of mixed race. Uh, what was his experience overseas? Was he particularly intrigued with Europe? How much traveling did he actually do in his life? I mean, he died at 33, tragically young. Yes, that's right. Um, he had a, a, a great experience uh, in, in England. In fact, uh, there was the, I know you've heard recently, the, the Queen's Jubilee. Uh, you know, that was occurring when he was there. Queen Victoria, uh, the old yeah, queen. You know, yeah, that's right. The other queen, earlier queen uh, of the Victorian age. And, uh, and while he was there, he was able to in, enjoy the renown that he built up in the United States. And so there was great recognition there of who he was. And there was a, a number of people like um, uh, the, uh, uh, the musician that you point to, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, in working with him. And so those two actually performed together. Uh, in uh, England uh, to uh, remarkable audiences. I talk about their relationship and their performance together. Uh, but just more broadly, he thought that this was a moment when you know, he 
was being appreciated in a way that he wasn't in the United States. And that's a class. I mean, exactly the same happened with Baldwin and so many others in Europe and France later. That's right. Or earlier, when you look at, uh, you know, writers like Frederick Douglass or William Wells Brown, people who travel to Europe. And in Europe, there's a different sense of what's called the color line. And there's a different severity of racial prejudice and discrimination. And so as he was in England, it gave him a chance to juxtapose the English scene and the American scene. Uh, And it also gave him a chance to reflect on, on the one hand, this enormous praise that he received from William Howells. He received that praise before he went abroad. But uh, once he landed abroad, he was reflecting even more on the repercussions of that praise. And so it was just as in the case of Baldwin and others like Richard Wright, who were in Europe, uh, trying to understand um, America and the role of race there, he was able to be quite reflective when he was in England. Uh, People, of course, are going to read your book, um, Gene. Um, It's an incredibly authoritative, beautifully written book, uh, uh, The Life and Times of a Caged Bird, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. But if they wanted to read something of, of, um, of Dunbar himself. Uh, his, his novel, The Sport of the Gods, is, is one of the better known ones. Where would you advise people start with reading Dunbar? Mm-hmm. Well, The Sport of the Gods, as you point out, is uh, his fourth novel. It's, 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 it's actually one of the most popular works that's assigned in schools, right? Because it is a work of fiction, uh, it's accessible, uh, and, it, and it covers you know, African-American life in terms of its transition from the South to the North and the ways in which the environment can affect, can affect the decisions that African-Americans make and also their life fortunes. Um, so I do think that is a, is a good work. But I would also look at uh, perhaps his first book of poetry, Majors and Minors, from 1895, because that is the book that launched him on uh, the map. It covers the full array of his poetic styles. Uh, On the one hand, it includes his dialect uh, verse, and so you can see the poems that were actually quite popular. Uh, And on the other hand, it includes poems in formal English, the kind that kind of harken to, uh, you know, the fireside poets of of Whittier and and others of of the 19th century. So you can see this kind of bimodal approach to producing poetry. That's also a book that kind of vacuums up some of the earlier poems that he um, uh, had written, but also it telegraphs the kind of approaches that he would take in the future. And so in addition to that novel, uh, I would also say majors and minors. And because it's in the public domain, it's easy to access online. He's remembered quite fondly, it seems. I mean, I didn't know, I have to admit, I didn't know much about him, but there's a a Paul Lawrence Dunbar house in Ohio. Um, there are, he's, he's remembered in Lexington very fondly. He still has family members. He has a school, uh, has a, a Paul Lawrence Dunbar class of 2022 in, in, in Lexington, Kentucky. Here, his face is, was on the um, uh, a 10 cent coin in 1975, a US, uh, not a coin, sorry, a US postage stamp. How should we remember Dunbar? Along, uh, you, know, you can go to Dayton National Park and find uh, 
commemorations to him. But how should we remember this guy? I mean, you've, you've written this enormous book about him. You've spent many hours, many months, years investigating, researching Dunbar. How, how would you like us to remember him as an American, as an African-American, and indeed as a, as a creative, as a poet and a writer? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, so I will say that uh, he should be uh, interpreted as an outstanding American writer, above all, um, who was a an insightful commentator and um, a, a person of great imagination about the African-American experience, pulling from his own personal experience, but also pulling from the experiences of his parents who were enslaved and also the African-American communities that he was a part of. And so the thing that we find is that through Dunbar's life and his literature, you will find a central story of what it means to be an American uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but also what it means to be uh, an American of African descent, trying to understand race and how uh, to succeed in this kind of Gilded Age world. Uh, I think the people today, as time goes on, will see the various details of his life, uh, the contradictions that he has, the, his relationship to Alice Ruth Moore. Yeah, you might mention that. We didn't get to that. Perhaps you might say something about that, why you think it's interesting and important about him, about yeah. his, his wife. Because, you know, Alice Ruth Moore was an exceptional writer. She is someone who uh, scholars and, and readers today revere as well. And she has her own story that extended past his and go into the period of the Harlem Renaissance. And they had a rather uh, tempestuous relationship. And you see a side of Dunbar, someone who is on the one hand uh, struggling with his public persona, but also someone who kind of took out these concerns, these anxieties um, in uh, kind of controversial and in, at times violent ways uh, at home. So I think you see him as a human being with great flaws. And so we didn't talk about that very much because we were talking more about his historical context. But that is a private personal life that I reveal in the biography. Uh, and I would say, on the other hand, he's someone who had built great relationships, not only with Booker T. Washington, who you uh, touch on before, uh, but also Frederick Douglass, someone who was his uh, mentor. And also with Orville Wright, uh, someone who was a classmate when he was in high school, and later Theodore Roosevelt, someone who had taken a liking right. to. He him. always shows up, Theodore Roosevelt, in all these narratives. He doesn't seem he's ubiquitous. He 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 blusters into everything, doesn't he? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, he certainly has a great. Uh, he has a commanding reputation, as we've learned uh, through history, uh, but. Theodore Roosevelt, who was previously at one point governor of New York and then later on president of the United States, knew Dunbar during his political career. And in moments when Dunbar was seeking help or had certain troubles, he reached out to uh, Theodore Roosevelt and they had corresponded uh, in letters. And so those kinds of details I talk about in the book. And so I think to make a long story short, you should review him or you should consider Dunbar as someone who is an extraordinary individual of his times, but always also someone who captures the great complexities of what it means to be 
an American writer of African descent at the turn of the century. Perhaps uh, Anna Malaika Tubbs could follow up with the three wives uh, and, and have uh, one of the wives being um, Dunbar's wife, or maybe you could write a, a biography of, of Dunbar's wife. Uh, finally, um, Jean, Anna, again, I apologize for a rather silly question. Let's say this guy suddenly reappeared, Dunbar. Well, he could come back to the world in 2022. Your day job is as um, Princeton's dean of faculty. You've been involved in some of these controversial cases on the Princeton campus, the case of Joshua Katz. An architecture professor has also been fired. It seems like Princeton is particularly sensitive to uh, debates and controversies over race and racial identity. I know you're a, a big believer in the value of um, higher education. Uh, you believe that the world can be improved. What do you think um, uh, Dunbar would think if he came back to a world in 2022 and saw your world and Princeton of enormous progress and yet in some ways even more inflamed racial sensitivities? Well, I would say that higher education is a context where we have the free exchange of ideas. So academic freedom is a centerpiece for the ways in which we consume knowledge and how we advance knowledge. And so that is a cornerstone of my thinking and how I situate myself with respect to the circumstances of our world today. Uh, and I would also say that the work of scholars and writers at institutions like Princeton and elsewhere, they have a kind of charge, an intellectual charge, a personal charge, a professional charge to engage people with different ideas. And in this context, I think I am in great support of how uh, such artists and writers are able to convey their opinions about humanity and in particular about the world in the United States. If Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, returned today, uh, he is someone who, as I said before, was betwixt and between different perspectives. On the one hand, the worldview of Booker T. Washington, who endorsed vocational training, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who uh, endorsed the life of the mind, that is to say, uh, the role of academic education in being a portal to the future. I think Dunbar was open, and he was especially open to the debate between these two individuals. He was someone who recognized the value of the free exchange of ideas. And I think he would come today uh, in our world and be in great support of the great freedom of intellectual ideas that has been available in our country and also at our universities. And Princeton is one of those great institutions where academic freedom and intellectual exchange are, part of, are possible. Well, if you let me in, Gene, I'll come and take some of your classes. Uh, congratulations on the new book, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Life and Times of a Caged Bird. Uh, what else are you reading these days? People need to read your book. It's an important book about one of America's greatest uh, literary creative figures. But what else are you reading these days? That's a great question. I will say that there's a another uh, biography that was published by David Blight. It was on Frederick Douglass and mm -hmm. came out a few years ago. And it's an outstanding work. And in fact, it was a model of the great kind of biography that's possible 
of an individual from uh, the 19th century. And so that's, it's a long book, uh, but I think it's a, it's a fruitful one. Um, I've also uh, been uh, reading uh, David McCulloch's book, uh, John Adams. And so there's a full array of biographies of what's been called the founding fathers of America. And I think these works are helpful in understanding the key questions about individualism, about freedom, about how do you build a society? How do you build governance at the early stages of, of America? And so I've been compelled by a David McCulloch's book on John Adams, and also I'm trying to work my way through Rod and Chernow's book, um, George Washington. Uh, the, the problem with all these books that I mentioned is that they're so long. You know, so yeah. well, I know uh, Ron Chernow. We'll have to tell him to write shorter books, Gene. Yeah, 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 that's right. You know, we'll see if that'll ever occur. But I think what they well, your book's have, long as well. You need to, it, it is a shorter well. version, maybe. But I do think that, uh, you know, it's it's possible. I defer to you know my colleagues who are at the publishers and also Wendy Strothman, my agent, if they want to advise on that. But I will say that when you do the deep archival research and you're understanding all of the elements of someone's life and career, you have to do it justice. And I would hope that people would read my biography and, and understand the complete life and, and career that he demonstrated and that we enjoy today. 